This episode of the Dirtbag Diaries is brought to you by Patagonia, makers of high-quality clothing and gear for outdoor sports, world travel, and daily lives lived in harmony with nature. Visit them on the web at patagonia.com. The Alaska Range. It's the continent's last great wilderness. It stretches all the way from the Canadian border into the heart of the northern interior. Comprised of dozens of smaller subranges, the string of ice-covered mountains runs for 650 miles and is home to some of the most intimidating peaks in the world. The Nolly, Mount Foraker, Mount Hunter. It's an endless maze of glaciers, peaks, tundra, and brush. In 1996, photographer John Burcham and his close friends Kevin Armstrong, Jeff Arpners, and Doug Woody hatched an incredible plan. They would walk the entire range, from the small town of Talk all the way to Lake Clark, 700 miles to the southwest. They would cross only two roads. In mileage, it's about the equivalent of walking from Los Angeles to the Oregon border, maybe, or from New York to Chicago. There are no trails. This region is plagued by chronically bad weather and mosquitoes. This is no walk in the park, and it had never been done. They spent their winter and spring planning and organizing and that summer, they quit their jobs in Denali National Park, established a series of caches, and started walking. Here's John, or as his friends call him, Bircham. You know, we were trying to find a line of least resistance, being, you know, as close to the mountains as we can, and going over passes, following glaciers, uh, just skirting the whole, the whole range, following the spine, but without being on the spine. You know, the thing is, it's, there's just two different styles, that fast and light or kind of, we call it slow and dumb, you know. We just want to be out, we want to be out there, you know, and experience it. So we definitely, we definitely could have shed some pounds. It was a testament to the power of teamwork. Together they laughed, argued, swore, and eventually persevered. When they forded the raging glacial torrents, they stood side by side, clasped arms, and pulled one another towards the safety of shore. Together, they gather their voices into a commanding yell to chase away inquisitive grizzlies. Tied to one another, they crossed glaciers riddled with gaping crevasses. They floated rivers in tiny inflatable rafts. It's just, you know, every day had a new challenge. Something would come up, something would happen that you could never expect. You know, something would look different on the maps and you have to go one way or the other or food would run low or rafts would pop. I mean, there was always something every day. For 75 days, they put one foot in front of the other and egged each other on. But the delays mounted. Sickness, a freak windstorm that pinned them down for three days, a broken camera. By the middle of August, the team was two weeks behind schedule. Bertram had a problem. His little sister was about to get married, and he had promised to be there. He had told his family that he would be there. And he had to decide now. Continue on and miss his little sister's wedding. Or he could turn around right now and head for a remote hunting lodge on the very edge of Denali National Park, where he could catch a flight out. No big deal. I'll just go back. You know, I've, I've done solo trips in Alaska. It was, it was no big deal, you know, to do that. So that's, that's what I thought. Bertram offered to carry some of the extra gear they wouldn't need for the final two weeks. They hugged each other goodbye, and the crew started walking towards Lake Clark. Bertram turned and headed for the small valley they had just come from. I, I just still... So clearly remember those three guys going off and me going, and I was like, "This is different. This isn't. This isn't a solo trip. This isn't. This is different." You know. And I-
Why do we explore? Why would anyone put themselves in the midst of an endless wilderness, expose themselves to such risk? Ultimately, these wilds lead to a deeper place. The irony is that we travel across the world to discover and understand what exists inside of us. Our minds and hearts come with their own geography, their own sets of peaks and valleys, and they can also come with their own sets of dangers. Crevasses, hungry wildlife, hypothermia, they can all kill you, but only loneliness can drive you crazy. This week, we bring you No Big Deal, photos and stories from John Bertram, I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. part of this unit of four for so long and all of a sudden you're by yourself like getting three appendages cut off you know when you're Bertram isn't exaggerating he's made a living photographing and participating in some incredible journeys in some of the world's most remote places western China's mountains South American jungles and the Alaskan interior he has a perverse understanding of cold thirst and endurance and he meets most of it head-on with laughter when someone like Bertram tells you they have a story, and a serious story, you shut up and listen. Bertram watched his friends leave and disappear over a hill. He could feel his gut start to turn. He thought of his family thousands of miles away in Southern California. They were finishing up wedding plans, confirming with caterers and florists. Mentally, he was stuck between two different worlds. Physically, he was smack in the center of North America's most unforgiving wilderness. Maybe I wasn't thinking all together, or I would make mistakes that maybe wouldn't do. The bear tracks appeared like a bad omen. As Bertram climbed up a steep slope, the valley was funneling towards a narrow pass. It's, it's more confined. You're in very narrow valleys in this pass where it's not that open and I thought I just kept seeing these tracks going the way I was going and I thought oh my, I'm gonna run right into this bear way up in this mountain pass and but he kept going he was already nervous and all he could focus on was getting to that lodge the next valley would lead to a river that would take him directly there the other option would be to traverse the other side of the peak above him he rolled up over the ridge and looked down into the small valley and immediately he knew he was in trouble a couple hundred feet below him, the mother grizzly, with three cubs in tow, sniffed the air. When you're by yourself, all of a sudden, that's a big problem. When you're in a group of four, you're a group of four strong. And a, and a bear, you know, we've encountered several bears along the thing, rivers, everything. You know, we're a strong group of four. And that's when it just, my, my gut sank. Like, I'm by myself out here. And I, I really miss the group, you know. With the path of least resistant block, he turned and headed back up, around the peak, and onto a small glacier. Already he could feel his thought process changing. The wilderness that had become almost mundane over the last 75 days had become oppressive, almost terrifying. The loneliness was overpowering. He wanted out. There were options. He could sit and wait. But to Bertram, the only solution was to keep moving forward. As an Alaskan veteran, knowing full well he was about to make a mistake, he turned around and headed for the glacier. So 
going across there, there was a little uh, small crevasse with some snow across it, an ice bridge, you know. I thought it would hold me, and as I walked across that, it popped through, and I was waist deep in this small crevasse, but it, it wedged down. I mean, if it had gone through, I would have sunk down. I had no ice axe, so... The ground beneath his feet gave way like a trapdoor swinging open. For that brutal half-second, there was no way of knowing the outcome. The hole could have been a few feet deep or hundreds. The bridge collapsed, but the snow funneled into a tight constriction stopping his fall. He was stuck, wedged into this fissure. From a distance, it must have looked like a man treading water in a vast sea of snow. This time, there was no rope tied to his harness. There was no helpful hand there to grab his pack and wrestle him back to safety. There was nothing but the soft hiss of drizzle and a sobering realization. The one thing I thought about that just kind of even gave me more of a rot gut feeling was the group had gone on for, um, they were going on for roughly 10 days to 14 days on to finish the trip. If I didn't report back to my sister's wedding, right, everyone would assume I was just sticking it out with the group. Like they figured, oh, John blew it off. He's just, He's just continuing the hike. He didn't make it. They didn't make it in time. So the thing that hit me was, one, no one would know where I was, and two, no one would just even, no one would even remotely know to even look for me for 14 days. It really hit me then, like, no one's going to come after me. No one's going to look for me. No one knows where I am. And that that was just uh, bad icing on the cake, I guess. <laughs> Bertram's arm was extended out above the ice, like a child trying to pull himself onto a granite countertop. He had been incredibly lucky, but now he was stuck. He had to figure a way to get a little traction on the hard glacial ice. His heavy pack had pinned him in the crevasse. As the weight of his situation began to sink in, he started working out a solution. I was kind of up to my waist in this ridge, and I actually had some ski poles, and I I actually unscrewed the ski poles. There were some leaky poles, and they had these little spikes on the ends where they, these little plastic things. And I, was, I ended up putting those on my hand, and I clawed my way up over the, onto the ice, onto the glacier, and that, that put me over the pass. And then, Richard paused momentarily, trying to collect his thoughts. He thought about the group headed on, about his situation. If he screwed up again, there would be no one to help. He might not get another chance. Uh, we had crossed on this expedition hundreds and hundreds of rivers, and some rivers would be really shallow and we would just cross them, no big deal. More serious ones, we would link our arms, I would waterproof all my camera equipment. The third and most desirable option was to float. Whenever possible, the team had taken to water, deploying a small fleet of yellow rafts. Their uh, caravel, uh, little vinyl uh, rafts, and they strictly stay for pool use only. And uh, we pushed those things to the limit. They're just yellow, oval-shaped things, and they'll hold one guy in a backpack. That's basically it. And... So you're talking about the the same sort of 
boats that you'd see like a toddler cruising around in in the pool. Yeah, or a really calm lake with his dad, you know, cruising around. <laughs> we've got we learned to be experts with those things, and even on that trip, we had probably traveled well over a hundred miles in those boats. All he had to do was float this glacial stream for ten miles or so. But Bertram was exhausted. He had been on the move for 18 hours already, and he had tried sleeping, but he couldn't relax, couldn't stop thinking about getting to that lodge. I, was, I guess I was in a rush, so I decided to put the, my backpack in the middle of the raft and just sit on it, straddle it cowboy style, and just ride it down, you know? I wasn't going to strap it, no big deal. As soon as I did that, it flips over instantly. The backpack fell from the raft. Bertram toppled into the water. The breath rushed from his lungs. The cold gathered in his temples. Somehow he managed to grab the raft and his backpack. And I made it to shore. Just, you know, soaked to death. And I, at this point, I'm shaking so hard. I could hardly carry the raft or my pack. And I can't even think straight. I'm so cold. And I get my act together to put the raft the pack on the right way, get in the boat, and I start cruising downstream. He had to get dry. There were no trees or woods on the flat glacial plain. He needed a fire. Several miles downstream, the gravel mounds gave way to spruce forests, and the only option now was to continue on. He had to keep going. I don't think it was that life, death kind of thing. It was just, I gotta do something, you know, I gotta get out of this situation, so it's just get to get in that river and just get out of here kind of thing. Left the group. Jeff had given me a book. He's like, take this book out. I don't need it anymore. And so I ended up throwing it in my backpack. When he gave it to you, were you just like, God, I don't want this. I mean, what? Like, just, you know, burn it or something. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to slog this. I was kind of like, you know, like, yeah, I want to carry out some of you guys' stuff you don't need, like tents or poles or gear you guys don't need to continue on. But as soon as I was in that spruce forest, I knew exactly what that book was for. I started tearing the pages off, and I um, that's what started the fire. And once the fire was up, I was okay at that point. I knew I was going to be all right. The fire crackled to life. Bertram dried his clothes. The sun even made a rare appearance. And for the first time in 20 hours, it felt like he was going to be okay, that he was going to make it. It definitely saved me as far as, you know, warming me up. And I probably spent two hours there, you know, staying by that fire. It was a a good security blanket. And did you keep taking photos throughout this? I I kept recording. I kept shooting even after this incident, even going over the past. I kept photographing, 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 just trying to tell the story, but uh, I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> All the gear had gotten wet. The camera body, the lenses, Bertram knew none of the shots would turn out, but he kept shooting anyway. None of the pictures would have come out. Not a one. Everything made it, you know, it was trashed. I guess that was kind of a an outlet as I was doing it, even as I was going, I would set the tripod up and take pictures whenever I, I could. It kind of diverted my focus, you know. Maybe it was like the 
Tom Hanks, that was my little volleyball on the island, I guess. I could talk to the tripod or something, but I wasn't gone that long. By the time Bertram reached the lodge eight hours later, he had been on the go for 28 hours straight. We always called it old man's disease, where I just was hobbling in where everything had frozen up, and people saw me, and they were just like, what happened to you? And I just, my knees, everything froze up, and I just... As he lurched into camp, the first words that popped out of his mouth were, can I get a flight out of here? He wasn't thinking about food or bed or spending the night. He just wanted out. He wanted to be done with this place. Four days later, he was in Southern California. Ten days later, Otmers, Armstrong, and Woody would complete their epic journey across Alaska. It would take them 90 days. Did you, uh, when you got to the wedding, did you tell your parents what you'd gone through? Yeah, but it it was hard to um, you know it's hard to explain it. You know they're, they're in the wedding mode. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, yeah, John's just on some big hike. Was it a little surreal to be like in you know Southern California seeing your little sister getting married? It was pretty strange after being out that long, but uh, uh, it was worth everything to go back. You know, see my sister's face on that day. So it was worth it. Bertram's 28-hour epic was just the tiniest footnote in this incredible journey. It's a given, but it stayed with him. It lingered. And he tried to tell other people about it. He tried to tell his friends. He tried to tell his family, but it just didn't come out right. I told them all... Oh, but it, you know, it just didn't seem like that big a deal, I guess. It was just kind of like, yeah, hell yeah, crazy thing, you know. It was crazy as soon as I left you, you know. Saw some bears, and it was just more like a jokey kind of fun thing, you know. It wasn't... The connection to those three other guys was so powerful, and the sorrow that had come from the separation was so intense, it was easier just to stop talking about it. Each of the guys have gone their own ways these days. Families and careers have replaced three months' expeditions, but those connections with one another are still overwhelmingly powerful. The bond is still fresh even a decade later. Did you expect it to be that powerful of a, of a mental reaction when you left the group? No, not at all. I mean, I guess that's just what was... Yeah, just that's where I guess where I realized how strong we had bonded over that that time. You know, where it was it was completely unexpected that that feeling. Of, you know, it was the, the loneliest I've probably had ever felt in my life. You know, have you ever felt that way since then? Uh, I don't think so. Say the truth, this is just one little weird mental sidebar that somehow. I don't know, it sticks in my head, you know, and and I, I haven't really told many people, you know. And I think the thing that scared me was where no one would have well, no even remotely come to look for me or 
or anything in it. Out of all the places you've been, was this was this the most powerful experience that you've had? Yeah, I'd definitely say that was the that was the hardest, longest trip you know I've ever done. And just you know, it was yeah. Those other trips are good, you know. I seem to it definitely was the coolest trip I ever did. I've never done anything as long or as hard as that trip since. I'd do it again, though, when you look at the picture. <laughs> John Bertram lives with his wife and daughter in Flagstaff, Arizona. He's still exploring, putting up new climbing routes, and sandbagging the youngsters. To check out more of his work, visit www.johnbertram.com. This week, music by Keith Anderson, Velour, Hurd, and Sean Hayes. Additional editing and art direction by Walker Cajal. As always, a big thanks to the people at Patagonia whose belief in independent voices makes these stories possible. Visit them online at patagonia.com or check out their blog, thecleanestline.com. Additional funding provided by Avid for Adventure, introducing teens and children to the joys of outdoor sports, environmental stewardship, and friendships forged in the natural world. To learn more, visit avidfor.com. If you like what you hear and want to help, please go to iTunes and write us a review. Or post your feedback on our website, thedirtbag.libsyn.com. Every little bit of input helps. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs>